It was absolutely amazing last week. It was amazing to see how many people came, how many cars there were, uh, how many guys were here. It was just a blast, you know, to be able to see everything that God did last week was just was just amazing. So thanks for being a part of that. I also want to thank, uh, you know, the, and the entire car show was run by volunteers. Okay, so it was just amazing to see guys to say, hey, we're going to own it this next year. And they've just been owned every year. There just seems to be more guys like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to be in charge of this this next year. And so just excited. So thank you guys, you know, for putting that on for all of us to enjoy. I uh, wanted to thank you also for continuing to pray for my health. Uh, you know, not quite there yet, which is why I'm stuck in the seat. You know, I'm listening to my wife and the doctor. Yes, in that order. Um, you know, as it pertains to some of these things for the next couple of weeks. Uh, just to try to protect, you know, and continue to on this, uh, this, this pathway of healing. So thanks for being here on this day. On this, what we oftentimes, if you're in this area for more than a year, you know this is Hoopfest slash Ironman weekend. And so uh, we know that you are the true Iron Men and women, you know, because you're most committed to Jesus because uh, you're here. So thank you, you know, for being here while my family is down at Hoopfest. So uh, you can pray for their salvation, you know, as they go through this as well. So uh, we're beginning a brand new series today um, called Uncommon. Now, now, when the word uncommon literally means uh, out of the ordinary, something that's unusual. So I started thinking about things that are uncommon, and for some reason my mind went to animals. Okay, uncommon animals, things that, these animals that you probably wouldn't see or maybe most of you wouldn't know about. So I just started doing some basic research on this, found some pretty interesting ones. Like, how about the blue angel sea slug? Okay, beautiful creature, only found off the coast of South Africa and Australia. It actually collects venom from its prey and then uses venom on future prey. Okay, very unique created creature, very uncommon. Uh, A second is sparkle muffin, because the name itself is worth mentioning. The sparkle muffin uh, is the Australian peacock spider, and although it looks big on the screen, it is only five millimeters in length, five millimeters in length. Then you've got uh, the goblin sharks. These are living fossils. They're able to detect the electrical currents emitted by other animals and rapidly extend their jaws in order to snatch up their prey. Uh, Then we've got the the, the tardigrades. Uh, These are microorganisms that literally can survive in outer space. So they actually tested, you know, these organisms out there. Uh, One of my favorites is the elephant shrew. The elephant shrew, uh, they're located in Kenya, has a very unusual appearance, as you can see, with the body of a mouse and the head of a miniaturized anteater. And some of you guys are like, I'm going to get that instead of a gerbil for my kid, you know, looking forward to that. And then lastly, I just pulled out the northern hairy-nosed wombat, because you can. You know, the wombat has poor eyesight, uses their noses to search for food in the darkness, as there's only about 315 that are known in the entire world. These animals... And many others, created by God, are uncommon. They are unusual, and they stand out. Now, the reason I mention that is so should followers of Jesus. We are supposed to be, compared to the world, uncommon, unusual, and we're supposed to stand out in a really, really good way. In fact, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. In other words, stand out, be different. Let God transform you into a new person by the changing the way you think, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so that's what we're called to be. And yet there's a temptation that has been around for thousands of years for Christians not to stand out, 
not to be uncommon, not to be different, to actually look a lot like the world. And so what we're going to do is uh, through the course of this summer, we are going to be challenged by another church, uh, one that existed a few thousand years ago in a city in the Roman world called Corinth. And we're going to talk about that city a lot more next week. And so this message, just so you know, is going to feel a lot more like a teaching, a little bit more narrative and more Bible study, because I need you to understand the groundwork of what the next three months are going to kind of look like. Because as we go into this, you know, city, as we go into this church and we go into some of these letters, you need to understand the guy who wrote this letter uh, probably spent more time uh, in the city of Corinth with these people. And at least we know wrote more letters to these people than anywhere else that, that he's ever been. So we can learn a lot. And I'll tell you what, just like as Americans, we can struggle in what's now known as the new Rome is what the United States has been kind of known for is that there's a temptation for us to look like the world. Paul has some words to express to them of warning, of correction, and yes, encouragement that I think applies to us as well. So I want to encourage you as we go through this summer series. So let's start with how this church or this group of people became a church. It actually starts in the book of Acts in our New Testament. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 1, it just says two simple words, then Paul. Now I need to give you some background. Uh, because Paul is a pretty uncommon kind of character uh, in our Bibles. Uh, Paul used to be known as Saul. Uh, he was a religious zealot, passionate about Judaism, passionate about God, trained by the religious elite of his day. In fact, if he remained on that course, he'd probably been one of the leading religious leaders, also called the Pharisees, you know, based on his education and his experience. And yet, we find him in our New Testament going after what he would call a cult, what he would fall, call um, people who are being swayed to not follow the God of Judaism, but, but he would call them, and they were known back then as people of the way, you and I would know them as Christians. And so he goes about persecuting these people until he ends up on a route where he's headed to a city, you know, uh, um, called, why am I missing, my brain's going, going fog, uh, Damascus, you know, where uh, he was going there to persecute more Christians, and he actually encounters the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who knocks him down, causes him to go blind. He then gets to go away for three years to say, wait a minute, what have I been thinking and processing all these years? Could I be wrong? He comes back, and then he gets commissioned by God through the disciples as well to go in the world beyond where he is, he's familiar with to uh, the Jews first who are scattered throughout the world, and then to Gentiles. Now, Gentiles just mean non-Jewish people. So he goes on three what we call missionary journeys, and in a couple of those journeys, he goes through this famous city called Corinth. And so with that as kind of the background, let's pick up, and there's a lot of scripture here, but I just want you to see the story. It says this in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, then Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, many of you are familiar with Athens and Greece, and we'll see about, we'll talk, we're going to talk more about, like I said, the city of Corinth next week. There, he became acquainted with the Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just as he was. Each Sabbath, Paul found himself in the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks who were following the Jewish ways alike. And after Silas and Timothy, who were partners with Paul in ministry, came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. 
that he was the Christ, the long-awaited one that they had prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was trying to use the Old Testament as proof to the Jewish people to understand. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. In other words, I've tried to help you understand. And since you've rejected, from now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles, again, are just non-Jewish people. Then he left and went to the home of Titius Justice, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, get this, the leader of the synagogue and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. So he did convince some, the leader actually began to follow the Lord as well. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers and were baptized in the same way that we do here as well. We ask people to come to Christ and then get baptized. And if you look at our cross, you can see that we've gone through 250 light bulbs, you know, on there, which means it represents over 250 people who've gotten baptized just in the last year, which is absolutely amazing to see what God has done. Now, at the bottom, you might notice that some of the lights, you know, are getting mold, you know, but they're turning green. And the reason is because that was our way while they're trying to design and create a new cross that can't happen right away. One that has more light bulbs on it. Uh, before this one goes dark, you know, in September, which is what we do every year. Every time you see a green, green one, you'll know that there are two names now written underneath. The person who was baptized, you know, a while, a while ago and the person who recently got baptized. So as the green ones go, that's just adding to the number. And that there are two names under each one of those because we have camps coming up. And let me just tell you, God does a lot of stuff and be praying because I know middle school camp leaves this Thursday. So just be praying for our middle schoolers and the volunteers and the parents and all that kind of stuff. So be praying for that this week. Okay, where was I? All right, baptized. Verse nine. Okay, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out. Don't be silent for I am with you and no one will attack and harm you for many people in the city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God. But when Galileo became governor of Achaia, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Galileo turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I would have reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and he beat him in the courtroom. But Galileo paid no attention. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Centuria. So Paul leaves, again, this is what he did. He would go to places, start in synagogues, get rejected oftentimes, then go to Gentiles, and then they would accept Christ and brand new churches would be formed. When those churches were formed, he would then entrust that to some other people, and then he'd go to the next town and the next place and the next place, trying to see God's work there. And then he would get reports from like Timothy, Sosthenes, and other people who would then actually report back to him saying, here's what's going on, or here's questions that they have because this is brand new and they don't know what they're doing. So then what Paul would do is because he can't get around fast enough to all these cities and all these places, he would write letters. And he would write those letters to not only be read in that church, but all the other churches in the region that he had planted. That's where we get a lot of our New Testament from, 
from the letters that Paul wrote to these churches in these cities, which is why we're going to spend the summer going through 1 Corinthians. Uh, uh, We know probably more about the Corinthians in Corinth than we know just about any other church in the New Testament. And so with that as the background, let's jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. I told you, it's more of a teaching time today. So I need you to think. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. Now it's interesting that Paul starts a letter differently than what we would start ours, right? We write dear so-and-so and we end with our name. That commonly for them, they would always introduce themselves at the front of a letter. So this is a common greeting. But the second part is not so common because he gives his basic credentials in writing to this church and they should know him. But what we're going to find later is that they question Paul's authority. They're like, who are you to tell us what to do or where to be corrected or even where to be encouraged? So Paul starts out, every word matters to him. He starts out saying, let me remind you who I am. I am an apostle. You know, apostle is one who's chosen. Apostle literally means authority. And he says, and not by men, but I am chosen by the will of God. So I have been put in position of spiritual authority and leadership in your life by God. And so he's trying to make that case, you know, to, you know, these people. Then he mentions this this person's name, Brother Sosthenes. Now, who is Sosthenes? We don't know. It was a common name back then for definitively, but it sure sounds like it was the guy that was beaten up in Acts chapter 18. So we're like, well, wouldn't that be the case? Because he was the new leader of the synagogue and it would be a group, a person that that city would know, especially the Jews who then became Christians to be like, oh, we know Sosthenes because he was actually against you also, Paul, but look, now he is a partner with you. So he's saying, look, I'm not just speaking on my own authority. I've got somebody that you recognize that also is going to be speaking on my behalf. I speak on the will of God and I'm an apostle. Now, that's important for us to know because after that introduction, Paul then reminds them who they are. So he takes time and when he says in verse two, I am writing to God's church in Corinth. Look, people, this isn't your church. This is God's church in Corinth and I speak for God. To you who have been called by God to be his holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Now, that word for church in the Greek is the word ekklesia, and it literally means called out ones. So it's a gathering, it's an assembly of a group of people who've been called out by God. It's not just a building where people gather. It is a group of people committed to the things of God. Now, we also are God's church. It's not my church, not your church. It's his church. And we are to be called out by God to be his representatives in the Spokane Valley and in this region. We're not a building. This building is where we meet. So I know it's a common phrase, where do you go to church? And we usually point to the facility, but the church is the people that are making up this church. Otherwise, it's just a hollow building. Okay, we also... All of us are under the leadership of godly men and women. That's the only way that Christ's church works. And he set up the structure. He even says in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. 
Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Now, nobody is perfect, but my question is, have you allowed godly leaders to lead your life? Now, as Americans and even American Christians, there is one word we don't like, typically, and the word is submission, right? We're Americans. We don't submit to nobody. You know, it's kind of our, part of our DNA, you know, as part of being America. That's why we kicked out the British. You know, that's just, we just go back to this, like, nobody tell us what to do. And yet, what we're going to find is the church in Corinth did not submit themselves underneath the leadership. And when you don't submit yourself to spiritual leadership in your life, you will find yourself falling into what the culture says is right instead of what God says is right. It happens all the time. And yet I know your hesitation because it's mine also. And recently, especially in America, you know, today, we have seen, you know, case after case after case, especially in large churches, of megachurch lead pastors, elders, other leaders, who have abused spiritual authority, who have a sexual impropriety, uh, misappropriations of funds, and it makes us question authority. It makes us say, I don't trust, I don't want to put ourselves underneath that. And we see this kind of carried out in culture, right? Our, our culture is kind of mistrusting authority itself, study American history, we've just gone back to the 1960s, okay? So we're just re regurgitating, you know, what happened back then. We have a mistrust of authority, and yet we all need it. But here's the key that you need to understand. To put yourself, to submit to a spiritual authority is not domineering. To submit literally means willingly place yourself underneath, to willingly. So you get to choose who you're going to willingly place yourself underneath for your benefit, for your growth, so they can encourage and yes, challenge you in your walk with Christ. So my question for you is, who is that in your life? Who is that that you have said, I'm going to place myself, it could be a life group leader, it could be a close friend, it could be a pastor. I know for me, I've got some close friends that I've done this with, but I also have our elders. You know, that they really, I'm underneath them and they tell me and lead me and guide me. And I have some other guys in my life as well. Who do you have? I know if I don't have it, I'm not good enough myself. I need other people who are more mature, who see things differently than me, who can encourage me, walk along this, this, this road that we call Christianity to help guide, comfort, pray, and yes, challenge me. What about you? Because we all need it. If you don't have it, you'll find yourself, as we're going to look at, very much like the Corinthian church. That's the first thing. The second thing is what we are God's holy people. This is who we are because of Jesus Christ. Now, holy literally means set apart by God for his purposes, that you are set apart. So if you accepted Christ, you, in the view of God, are holy. That's how God sees you. It is your identity. You are no longer defined by your past sins, your current sins, or your future sins. You are defined by God's grace and redemptive work in our lives. And embracing God's identity as his holy people empowers us then to live in a manner that reflects his glory and love for the world. Now, this is important that Paul says this to the church in Corinth, and it's important for me to say this to you, because in just a few chapters, you're going to read, are these people even Christians? You're like, wait a minute, they can't be holy? And Paul wants to remind them, no, 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 no. You have to remember who you are. I want to set the stage because I'm about to challenge you in that you're not living up to who you actually are, which is why I got to come back and challenge you again. Does that kind of make sense? So that's what he's doing with them and that's what he's doing with us. So Paul starts out reminding them and us who we are. 
Second thing is that Paul reminds them of God's blessings that we can hold on to. In verse three, he says, may God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So if you've been sleeping until now, I need you to wake up because this is an important piece. the most important part of what we're going to talk about because we really go over these greetings really fast, but we have been given the blessing of grace and peace. And I don't think we realize how important that is as part of our identity and how important it is as we go through life. Because grace literally means undeserved or unmerited favor. Undeserved or unmerited. So grace, as Paul stated, comes from God the Father through Jesus Christ. Paul understood that this is a divine attribute given only by God. And he also understood this is the thing that separates Christianity from all other religions that have ever existed. This idea and concept of grace outside of Christianity and outside of Judaism, no other religion has ever taught that God, there is a God who loves, who accepts and forgives human beings, not based on anything they do. In fact, in spite of what you do because of what he has done. That is incredible that we know that God's grace is what he actually created as a bridge built for our relationship with him as well as with other people. In fact, uh, Paul writes in, in Romans chapter three, this understanding of grace for everyone has sinned, the entire world, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, okay? Yet God, notice this, in his grace, his undeserved, unmerited favor freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty, which was due to us. We deserve the penalty. We deserve the punishment. And instead of saying for, you know, gone, he says, I'm going to put my son in your place and take it for you for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. You see, perhaps, you know, the story of the prodigal son is the best picture of God's grace. Because here's the son who wanders from God, you know, who finds himself, you know, living up in the world. And then he, all of a sudden, his whole life comes crashing down. He comes back to his father and his father doesn't do what most of us would do. His father doesn't tell him, I told you so. His father celebrates him, wraps his arms around him and throws a party. Mercy would be like, great, glad you're home. Yeah, you can, you're back here. Glad to see that you're here. That's mercy. Grace is we're going to have a party. Here's a ring. I'm going to celebrate what's happening. He's like, wait, wait. The son's like, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve mercy, let alone grace. And yet the father gives it to us anyway. Guys, this is incredible. I used to uh, ask a guy, you know, from time to time how he was doing. And I always hated his response. Because he always give me this snarky response over and over and over. You know what he'd say to me? Better than I deserve. Every time I ask him, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. I'm like, just be real. Tell me how you're really doing. But then I thought as I got to know him, I realized his deep understanding of grace was lived out in his life. And it was a phrase that reminded him that yes, because of Christ, he is doing way better than what he actually deserves. That unmerited favor that has been given by God. And so Paul says, grace, do you need grace today? Do you need to experience that today? The second word he uses is peace. Now, peace means inner well-being, wholeness, completeness, quietness, and rest, regardless of the circumstances of life. Anybody need some peace today? 
All right, a couple, four or five of us, great. Um, now, it's fascinating about this idea. What a beautiful picture of what he's saying, because it's, the shalom is the Old Testament word. This is the New Testament, you know, phrase of this. But in Romans 5, 1, Paul also writes, therefore, since we have been made right by God's sight, in by God's sight, by faith, we have peace with God. So there is a peace with God, but there's also a peace from God. Okay, there's two different kinds of peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus tells us the peace from him. He's, Jesus says, I am leaving you with a gift. Here's my gift to you. Peace of mind and of heart. And the peace that I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. So our world talks a lot about peace. Like if you do these things and just go on vacation and, and meditate and, and get more massages, I don't know, whatever you think, you know, is going to provide you peace. And none of those things are bad in and of itself, but he's talking about a peace that the world can't provide. And the peace that he's talking about is something that only happens within regardless of external circumstances, which is the peace that he gives to us as we receive Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I know this peace to be true but I also struggle with peace in my life. Like I'll, I'll give you a, a couple examples. Uh, COVID, um, I had a lot of inner peace uh, during COVID when it came to the world freaking out, okay? I was just like, okay, the world is going nuts. I didn't have as much peace when it came to church people, you know, and when it came to how we were handling things, you know, and, and with our governor sometimes, but that's a whole different, you know, conversation. Uh, I can tell you through my surgery that I've actually had way more peace, you know, than not internally, but then I find myself going back and forth. And why is it that? And then all of a sudden it dawns on me once again, and maybe you've experienced this as well. As soon as I take my focus off of Jesus, my peace goes away like that, instantly. Because all I'm doing now is focusing on the circumstances instead of the God that's gonna help me through or beyond the circumstances. And this is a daily, sometimes moment by moment, opportunity for me to build trust. And when I, when I trust in him, my part, God does his part by giving me the peace of heart and mind. Here's how he says it. In Philippians chapter four, verse six, Paul also, also writes, don't worry about anything. If you can worry and all of us have, then you can pray. It's the same thing. We're just directing it towards God instead of playing the, the tape over and over in our brains. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. So you're telling him, but you're also having a perspective of thanksgiving in the midst of whatever you may be facing. Then, he goes, this is the byproduct. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. In other words, it's not what the world gives. His peace, notice the same phrase, will guard our hearts and our minds as we live. That's our focus. That's our attention in Christ Jesus. When we stop that attention and focus and that priority, it's so easy to lose the peace. So Paul is reminding the people of the church in Corinth of grace and peace as a blessing from God. But he also reminds them of a second blessing that he wants to make sure they understand, which is the blessing of spiritual gifts. In verse four through seven, he says this, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way. With all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge, this confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. 
Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, you've been given a gift. You've been given a spiritual gift. And and notice what he says there. The gifts are given to us to bring glory to God by unifying and enriching the church, not the building, but enriching the lives of the people with the gifts that he has graciously given to us. Through the Holy Spirit, we are given these gifts with unique abilities, talents, and opportunities that he wants us to use selflessly for his glory and for his advancement. And so first, Paul reminds us and reminds them who they are. Second, he reminds them and us of the blessings that we've received. And then lastly, number three, God reminds them of God's faithfulness. Verse eight and nine, he says, God will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful even when we are not to do what he says. And he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's so encouraging again, that when we are not faithful, God will remain faithful. God's faithfulness will be the thing that sustains us. His faithfulness is not limited by our past, our present, and it doesn't go away into our future. He who began a good work in you and in me, his faithfulness will carry it on to completion. And with his faithfulness, we are invited, knowing that that's going to sustain us, to partner on this side of eternity with the gifts and talents we've been given in order to make a ripple effect through this life and into the life to come. Now, there's lots of opportunities. We tell you this all the time. Lots of opportunities to be involved. We're trying to get you an opportunity. And sometimes you think, well, it's because you want the church. Yes, I want the body of Christ, the church, to live out its fullness the way that God has called us to live with everybody playing their part uniquely. You matter to God. And you matter to Valley Real Life because this is God's church in our community, in our region to do what he's called us to do for unifying us for his glory and his glory alone. That's why we're here. And so one of the opportunities that you've heard about that I want to continue to throw out there and see what God does is just pray about. And that is uh, to possibly consider going to this church that we are launching in Riverside. You know, called Riverside, uh, Valley Real Riverside. And some of you guys are like, I don't know where that is. Okay. It's because if you look at Google Maps and if you look at Apple Maps, you type in Riverside, it's not going to be there because it's still under the old name, Westgate Christian Church. So if you're trying to find out exactly where it is. So I'm asking those of you who live on Argonne and that direction towards Spokane to consider maybe that may be where God is calling you as we've launched this campus, which will eventually become a church in that region. It's about the same distance. And the further you go towards Spokane, the closer it becomes. That may be for you. Secondly, and if not, that's fine also. Secondly, uh, for some of you to say, I'm going to go for a year. I'm going to be like, I'm going to go and be what, what Paul was to the church in Corinth. I'm going to be that for North Spokane. And I'm going to go for a year and do what God's called me to do and then come back, you know, if this is your place, you know, that you'd rather be. Again, this is not a guilt or a have to. I'm just asking you to pray about it. And I know we are Americans and we need more information. So we just can't make a decision. We got to have all the information. So on July 23rd, um, our campus pastor, Kelly, will be leading an interest meeting right after the services at 1230 in C1. If you go to the interest meeting, you are not locked in. Because I know some of you, I know once they get me in there, they're barring the doors and I'm now sucked in. You know, sometimes we've done that, I admit. We're not doing that this time. So welcome to come. Welcome just to see, is God calling? Is he leading? 
as the church launched in September 10th and September 17th, publicly September 10th, you know, as we see what God is doing there. And so with that being said, again, as we close, what makes us uncommon? What makes us different? What makes us stand out? You know what it is? It's following Jesus. In these first nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus nine times. He sets the foundation in their identity, in the blessings, in the partnership, in the faithfulness of God. Everything is rooted in Christ. And so he's leading that to what he's about ready to unfold to them, be out of his love for them, helping them understand who they are. This is who you are as well. And so your next step, what part, because it was more of a teaching than a preaching, it wasn't like this one point, what part of today's message will you apply? And so I got a couple of different options for you as we kind of talk through this. Maybe for you, it's to accept Christ and find your identity in him. That's what we talked about, your identity. Maybe today, that's the reason that God brought you here. Maybe you came back after the car show. I don't know, but God knows. And if that's pressing upon your heart, we're going to give you that opportunity. Maybe it's to find and submit to a spiritual leader that you realized, yeah, I'm helping and leading and I go to church, but I've never actually put myself underneath someone intentionally and partnered with someone intentionally to say, I need that in my life so I can become who Christ has called me to be. Uh, Maybe it's to experience God's grace and peace. You're walking out of here going, I get it now. I'm going to hold on to that this week. I need to experience that peace that surpasses understanding. Maybe it's to partner with Jesus by discovering and using your spiritual gifts. To be like, I've been attending church for a while, but I'm not partnering with him yet. Maybe that's your next step. Or lastly, maybe you're just going to walk out of here just choosing to hold on to God's faithfulness. You know, you've had, you know, life has been up to here and you're like, I'm barely surviving and I'm just going to hold on to the faithfulness of God. And he says, come on, I've got you. What is it that God's calling you to be? Or what is he calling you to do? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today and the opportunity just to begin this study, to begin this understanding of this powerful book, these powerful people who also struggled in life to be uncommon. And I pray that you would lead, guide, and direct our steps as we just seek to also to honor you. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for how you're leading. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.